a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. We want to start the day off by wishing you all a very happy holiday season. This episode is going to drop just two days before Christmas. I know that not all of you listening actually celebrate Christmas, but Merry Christmas for those of you that do. Happy Hanukkah, happy holidays to everyone else, and just uh, have a great weekend to anyone that doesn't celebrate any of these things. I think you got it covered, boss. <laughs> Today's Friday follow-up episode is going to be the last episode of 2016. And I want to thank all of you for all of your support over the last year and let you know that the very first episode of 2017 is going to drop on New Year's Day. We have at this point finally received the open records request from Smith County. Of course, we didn't actually receive everything we were expecting, but we did receive 5,000 pages of new documents and some new crime scene photos. And we've already spent most of this week pouring through those documents, and we have a lot of new information that I believe could very possibly break this case wide open. But for now, to wrap up 2016, we're going to get right on with our episode 247 Friday follow-up. Okay, Chief, we got a ton of email and social media responses this week, but they all kind of had the same tone. So I thought we could just maybe have a little chat about the year 2016 in review. Yeah, it has been a pretty incredible year, and I've been looking at a lot of the emails and social media that's come in. And first of all, I want to say thank you to all of you. I mean, the response to episode 247 has just been incredible. I mean, tons and tons of emails and tweets and Facebook messages saying that the episode brought them to tears. And I'll be honest, as we were recording and cutting a lot of this together, it brought up a lot of emotions in me and, and Mike as well as we were cutting it all together. Absolutely. I mean, we go through this process kind of on a day-to-day basis. And uh, when you look at everything from beginning to end, it really kind of paints a, a clearer picture of the big picture of what it is that we do. Yeah. And for me, I hadn't done this in a long time, but in order to put that episode together, 
we kind of had to go back through some greatest moments of 2016, all the way back from the beginning. And it's like you almost forget about all of those little victories, as well as the little defeats. You know, we always have our eye on the prize, and that is, right now, primary mission number one is to free Ed Aids and get him home to his family. And in order to do that, we have to be laser-focused on whatever information we have in front of us at that time, and that week, and that day, and that moment. And sometimes we get so focused on it, we forget about what's happened to lead us up to this point. But I'll tell you what, the thing that's been the most rewarding to me is how all of us, how you know, over 100,000 people from around the world have come together and connected through this case and through this show. I mean, you'll hear in the second segment here when we're taking calls that, you know, I got choked up when one of our callers called in and talking about how the show has affected her life. And that's what's really incredible to me. You know, what I want the Truth and Justice podcast to be and what I want this movement to be is an outlet, an outlet for people who want to do good things and make a difference in the world to have the opportunity to do that. For the single parent, for the family man or family woman, people just like me and you that have normal lives, we're not lawyers, we're not law enforcement, we're just regular people. And regular people tend to have the feeling that their voice doesn't matter. But somehow, with all of us together, we've managed to create a movement where every single voice actually does matter. And that's one of the reasons why I love these Friday follow-ups so much. I love taking the calls and reading the emails and the Twitter feedback and hearing from all of the listeners and seeing how this has affected them and how much they can help. We would never be where we are today if it were not for the help of all of the listeners. Yeah, and ever since I came on board, it's really neat to see that whenever you need something done, if it's something that you might not know so much about or have the resources to get done, you can always call on somebody who listens to the show who can help you. Yeah, literally there's never been a time that I needed help with something, whether it be an expert or just somebody to run an errand. There's never been a time where someone hasn't stepped up to do it. Someone has always stepped to the plate every time we've ever needed anything. And I know I've said this before, but that process and that giant pool of resources is the reason why Ed Eight's case was taken by the Innocence Project. It wasn't because of me or anything that I'm doing or Mike and I are doing here together. There are lots of investigators out working on lots of cases. But the fact that we have a pool, almost 200,000 strong, of people from every walk of life with every skill set imaginable that are willing to pitch in and donate their time to help is something that's never been done before. And even the people of the Innocence Project of Texas could never have seen that coming. I've had people ask me over and over again, why are these people helping? Why do they care? And it's amazing the place the world is in right now that people seem to be shocked when I tell them lots of people care and lots of people want to do good and lots of people want to help and just don't know how to do it. And what the Truth and Justice podcast is and the Truth and Justice movement is, is that outlet for people who want to do good in this world to have a voice. Yeah, it's been a really incredible experience for me, and I really appreciate you bringing me on board. Well, I couldn't be more happy to have you here. You really have made a huge difference in the show. We're getting a lot more done. We're getting through a lot more documents. I've had a lot more time to do research while you're doing some of the editing and all the production stuff that I used to do by myself. And I honestly believe that our Christmas costume party costumes were very fitting. The dynamic duo. <laughs> right. So that's enough of that. What I really want to do to end this episode is spend a little more time than normal taking calls and hearing from you, the listeners. All right. So let's move right on to the calls. 
Okay, I'm on the air with Meg from Chicago. How are you doing tonight, Meg? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Mike tells me that you have a four-year-old that may rudely interrupt us during our conversation. <laughs> at any moment in time. She uh, has Ratatouille on, but at any moment in time, we may need uh, Mike's fabulous editing. You know what? You're, you're not going to shock me a bit. I have a five-year-old that interrupts me constantly. Exactly. That's their job, I think, sometimes. And I've learned that you actually cannot sell them to the circus. That's actually frowned upon. I, I've threatened to sell my so, five-year-old Parker to the gypsies, and he always informs me, Dad, the gypsies don't buy people anymore. Oh, darn it, man. <laughs> well, that's what that, he said. That I don't could know have been true. good for me for a while. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Ed, uh, actually I have an eight-year-old as well uh, as my four-year-old. So, first of all, thank you for the podcast. Thank you for everything that you've done. For me personally, Ed has changed my life more than I could ever hope to do anything to help him or anybody else. It's been, we've started a correspondence that has been just exceedingly moving. It's been a vehicle for me to teach, I'm sorry, I'm going to lose it, Um, for me to teach my children about social justice and right and wrong and how we can help people in small and big ways in the world. I happen to be a state's attorney here in Cook County, uh, which is not best of jobs at many times and Ed has really encouraged me to go into the conviction integrity unit. So well, that's, that's something that I'm that I'm hoping to do. But on a more personal note, my son happens to be an Ethiopian adoptee, um, a little brown boy in a white family in a white community, and uh, has gotten a lot of bullying lately. And I wrote to Ed and was talking to him about it, and. He sent me a Christmas card today with this lovely note in how my son should be, how he should talk back to the boys, and how he should be so proud of his heritage. And, you know, to think about a man who has had 18 years of his life robbed from him, and he's trying to encourage a single mom in Chicago. It's it's unbelievable. That's absolutely incredible. And (laughs) you sent shivers down my spine and... Uh, turns out I've got something in my eye right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think actually killing off some deers could help you with that, probably. You know, I'm doing that right now. That's a good plan. <laughs> but really, Meg, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad you called. That's incredible in so many different ways. I mean, number one, you, the fact that what we're doing here, and, and Ed even specifically, is able to have an impact on anyone, much more even being being a state's attorney. That's incredible. And in your desire to join the Conviction Integrity Unit, coming from the prosecutor's office to do that based on what's been happening, is it warms my heart to know that you know, what we're doing has, has an impact. And just on an individual basis, you know, what, what I've always wanted from this is to be the outlet for normal people, just regular, like myself, or regular, normal, everyday folks to be able to step up and let their voice be heard and actually make a difference. And it's been amazing. And for Ed, because Ed gets transcripts of all of these, and I guarantee you, you're going to bring a tear to Ed's eyes when he hears that from prison, after everything he's been through, that he was able to actually help and make an impact in your life and your son's life. It's it's just incredible. Well, I'm so glad you called. And I tell him that with every letter, how much he's changed my world rather than, you know, me doing anything to help him. It's just to be able to show these letters to my children and say, sometimes the system doesn't work and this is what we can do to try to help is amazing that we can be educating our children with the movement that you've started. So thank you. Well, thank you. And and I really consider the movement that, that we've all started. And, and you know, like I'm always saying, you know, we're, we're trying to change the world one person at a time. It's working. And, and it brings a huge amount of hope. 
in our last letter, uh, Ed and I were, I don't want to say joking about it because it's not a joking matter, but talking about election issues. And in the midst of all the negative that's going on in the world, here's a man who has been robbed of his life who can send me encouragement, make me laugh, bring a smile to me. Uh, you know, it's, I can't say enough about Ed. I can't say enough about what you're, you and Mike are doing and what all of us are, what the, what the whole Truth and Justice Army are doing in our small and big ways. And so... Yeah, especially around the holiday season, it's heartwarming to just feel the connection between everybody is, is huge. It really is. And now I'm getting sappy. Now I'm getting sappy, so you need to just edit me out and, <laughs> I mean, and time, hang up on me or something or other. Time to go. <laughs> right. but, exactly. Hey, but, exactly. Wait, was that a four-year-old I heard? What? What? <laughs> uh, but, but really, Meg, I do really appreciate your call and your involvement and all your support. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Happy holidays to you and Mike and your family. Thank you so much. Same to you. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. Okay. I'm on the line with Jennifer from New York. Made it through again, Jennifer. Yes, I did. (laughs) How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I just wanted to get your opinion on whether or not you think that it is possible for Ed to actually be able to go home with his family next year. Because, you know, I've been communicating with him quite a bit. And every time he ends his letters with, I hope I get to spend my birthday with my family next year. And I hope I get to spend Christmas with my family next year. I'm just wondering if you think that's a real possibility. I know you said there was going to be some motions or, for lack of a better term, filed early next year. So I just didn't know if there are options for that to really happen for him. Yeah, I I don't think it's impossible, but I it's hard to say. I mean, for for us to start filing motions at the beginning of this year and have a turnaround so quick as to have him out of prison by next year would be a miracle, but it's not a miracle that I don't think is out of reach. The normal process of working through the system will typically take longer than that. And and we've seen that with the Anand Syed case. So Anand's this year, this summer when his conviction was vacated. That original uh, motion was filed back in 2015, and it took about a year before we had a hearing. And then after the hearing, it took another several months before we had a ruling. And then now we're dealing with the state's appeals and fighting for bail. And keep in mind, Adnan Syed's hearing, his PCR hearing, was in February 2016. And we're quickly approaching January of 2017, and he's still in prison. His conviction's been vacated, but he's still in prison. Is it likely? I I can't say. I want to say yes. I want to say yes really badly. But is it likely? Probably not. Now, with all that being said, is it possible? Yes. It, It just depends on what happens with these filings. You know, Allison could file a motion for DNA testing. Uh, like say for example, she files for a motion for DNA testing for the fingernail clippings from Elnora, and the fingernail clippings come back. They find DNA. They run through the DNA, the database, and get a hit. And and we know whose DNA is under her fingernails from the night of the murder. That would move very quickly. Typically, now we, you know we never know with Smith County, but typically in a case like that. Because, you know, we beat up on prosecutors here, but not all prosecutors are bad. As a matter of fact, the last phone call, we were just talking to a DA or a state's attorney out of out of Chicago, Cook County, an amazing person. And we just wait till you hear the call, uh, which at this point, the listeners just heard it. So they know what I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but typically, you know, prosecutors want to do the right thing. And so if they convict someone, 
and then a DNA test comes back and shows that they got the wrong person, typically they're going to move to speed that process along. They, they, most prosecutors are good human beings that want to do what's right, and they will do what they can do to try to right the wrong. You know, they can never, you know, like an Ed's case, if that, if that scenario I just laid out were to happen. They then have to face the fact, you know, David Dobbs will have to realize and face the fact that he sent a man away to prison, a, a man with a wife and a kid and a kid on the way, and made him spend the last 18 years in prison. And I have to believe that if he heard, even even him, if he if he heard and found out that it was the wrong person, and then as well as Matt Bingham, who's in charge of the DA's office now, would want to move to correct that. In that case, it could happen very quickly. So there are possibilities. Uh, typically, our justice system is not known for being the fastest moving machine on the planet. Yeah, I know. And that's, I feel bad when he speaks about that because, like you said, it's not impossible. But I do know that Rabia had said with Adnan that even once uh, the PCR came back in, in Adnan's favor, that it could be another 18 months, two and a half years before he could potentially get out of there. And I just know Ed's so hopeful now, and he's happy, and things are moving along, and he wants to get home, and I right. completely get that. And every day just seems too long. Yeah. In Ed's case, I want to believe, hopefully, if some of this testing comes back and we get some actual results, and I know if we get results, they'll be in our favor, it'll move faster because it's it's a very different process. So in Adnan's case, you have what is still a very adversarial relationship. It's not a technicality, but his conviction was vacated based on ineffective assistance of counsel. So the judge didn't say Adnan is innocent. The judge said Adnan didn't get a fair trial, and so he Mm -hmm. deserves a new trial. And so nobody's in a hurry to get this resolved. You know, the state's fighting tooth and nail because in their mind, they believe they still have the right guy. At least they're, they're, they're presenting themselves as though they believe they still have the right guy. So that's going to cause the process to take longer because they're still beating their heads against each other. That's very different than a claim and proof of actual innocence. At that point, the prosecutors typically are not going to continue fighting. It's no longer an adversarial relationship. If you have proof that you have the wrong person, even the biggest asshole prosecutor on the planet typically will say, okay, I give. Let's let's get on the same team now. So then when you have the defense and the prosecution both fighting for the same thing, the process goes much, much, much faster, and that's what we're hoping for in Ed's case. Yeah. Uh, one more quick thing. You mentioned about uh, the DNA under Al Morris' fingernails. Uh, did they still have those? They're supposed to. Uh, according to the documentation that we have from the DPS Crime Lab, the DPS Crime Lab in Dallas froze and stored and kept those fingernail clippings, and they should still have them to this day. So, yes, they should be. And I did have uh, one of our listeners who was a serologist look at the reason, because, you know, the the findings and the reports on that were, was Greek to me. I didn't understand what any of it meant. So I sent it to her, and she looked at it and told me that what it looks like to her is that there was two different DNA profiles under that fingernail. They never ran a full profile, but there's like PGM markers and things. I don't remember exactly, but it was there was one profile that said plus two and one that said two minus two or something, whatever it was. And she said that looks like they have two different DNA profiles under her fingernails. And if that's the case and we're able to get a full profile of DNA off of that, that should set him free. It really should. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, I'm going to focus my prayers on that now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good place to put them, I think. Yeah, that's all I got. Do the muscle, 
I'm the prayer, and you get this done. Okay, I well, trust you. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't mind, I'll throw some prayers up there, too. Yeah, you can do that. I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Have a great night, Jennifer. All right. Thank you, Bob. Bye. All right. I am on the air with Kimberly from the United Kingdom, all the way over in England. How are you doing tonight, Kimberly? Hi, Bob. Very well, thank you. And thank you for all the wonderful work you do and the really touching last episode. It's wonderful to know that we are making such a difference for people like Ed Eights and Keddie Stowe. Well, I appreciate that. And a big, big shout out to Mike on that one because he did a masterful job editing that together. That was a lot of work. He did indeed. No, and it shows. And you're making a true difference. So this is why I'm calling tonight. I've been thinking about, as both Angela and Leonard seem to know more than they should about this crime, how they might have been able to do this as a couple or how the dynamic of this might work. I don't think they're a criminal couple as such because we know they were an on-again, off-again couple, and they split up again shortly after the situation. And the crime scene itself is so small that with the amount of damage that was done, it looks to me more like one person did this rather than Okay. But because they're living together and because this was a full-on physical assault with punching, scratching, there's no way the person who murdered Elnora would not be marked because we know Elnora fought back. So if Leonard or Angela is involved, the other one knows this happened. There's no way the other one couldn't figure this out given the proximity of these injuries and the fact that they knew immediately when she was dead. So if one of them is responsible, then that one has to have a hold over the other person to ensure that they would never speak. So I've been trying to think about what kind of power each of them has in relation to the other to be able to keep the secret. And I don't see where Angela could actually have such power. The reason for this is partly that the way Leonard speaks about his children, he says, oh, I had one and he was expensive and I had one other one and, and she got pregnant, but that didn't matter to me. It doesn't sound like he cares that much about his children. So saying, oh, you won't have access to your children but not be a hold. And if she didn't have a job and she didn't have any kind of political connections or social connections or money that he could get use of, I don't see where she'd have something over him, but I do see that he would have something over her, especially given the finding that you found of his criminal history subsequent to this, which suggests that he has violence and controlling behavior, which is very consistent with people that commit domestic violence. And as people that have that kind of interest don't tend to link up with somebody else who also is equally controlling, because you can't have two people be in full control of the household it would seem to me that he would have power over her if he was able to instill fear and making the threat that you ever say anything about this, you'll go the same way she did, would have a lot of fear. Now, I listened to his interview again very carefully, and I noticed that there's two things that he emphasizes with much stronger voice and in some cases, even dragging out the words more than other things. And one of these things is emphasizing that Elnora asked him questions about whether or not he was cheating, which is a lie is always easier to say convincingly if you have elements of the truth. I think it probably is, in fact, the case that Elnora knew he was cheating and she questioned him about this. Now, if he's a controlling personality, 
who is inclined to domestic abuse, and especially given the report about how he responded to future women with who he was involved, I can see him exploding and snapping and lashing out at her and this crime occurring for that reason, that how dare you question me and how dare you suggest you're going to someone else. The other thing that he emphasizes a great deal is his certainty that there's, or there's forensic evidence of some kind that links to somebody else. And I suspect he may have, because if he is the person who committed this crime, I suspect this would probably be the first person he'd ever killed. And he would have panicked after this and would think, oh, I should go to my safe space. His safe space is his home. But at that time, Angela is there, and he can't go back to that home without doing something about ensuring her silence. So it's possible either that he went back and said, oh, I love you so much, and I went to tell Eleanor it's off, and she attacked me, and I had no choice but to defend myself, and now I don't know what to do, and I need your help. And he brought her there and said, okay, I'm going to dispose of the knife. I'll leave you here for a bit, and left her there and took off. She's left in this situation. She's not going to stay in the room with the body, so where she would go would be that back bathroom, and what you would probably do is smoke and maybe vomit which might be why the toilet seat is up and why the cigarettes with the lipstick are found there. Or he might have directly set her up. Like, if he looked in the rubbish at their house, he could find a couple of fingernail clippings, he could find some cigarette butts and go stick them at the crime scene and then say to her, and if you ever get a notion to talk to police or anybody else, I left your fingernail clippings there and I left some of your cigarette butts so they'll find out who you are. So that gives him added insurance if this is the case. So I think there's a possibility he could have manipulated the crime scene with that kind of evidence just to ensure her silence. Yeah, I think all those are, I mean, we're still so far away from, I think, for me to make a call to say that I think anyone did it at this point, I'm still a ways away from that. And so I'm still evaluating all the theories and you've, you've given me a lot to think about here. Some, some of it I agree with, some of them I'm not so sure about, but that's the thing when you're dealing with criminal behavior is it's not an exact science. You know, some people will see things one way and some people will see things uh, a, a little bit differently. Also, I'm having, <laughs> to, to, to be completely honest with you, I'm having uh, a little bit of, of difficulty responding because I've just started going through the 5,000 pages that we received from Smith County, and I have some new information that won't be revealed until uh, when we get back from Christmas break. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to remember what what can I talk about that we've already talked about and what what haven't we. But I think that we'll have a lot more light shed on everything that you, you have discussed uh, on our first uh, episode of 2017, which will actually drop on New Year's Day. Oh, wow. A bonus. Something definitely to look forward to. Yep. Will you be able, I mean, it's disgraceful Smith County took so long to give you the documents. Will you be able to put any of that online so that people will be able to go through some of it with you to help out, or yep. will that be after the year? Probably just like I've been doing, and th this is a little secret that a few people have caught on to and some don't. Um, I usually post all the documents for the coming week's episode about three days before the episode drops on the website. And that's that's actually just a logistical thing. You know, we, we finish editing the episode on Fridays and then we update the website and then we try to quit for the weekend. If you ever pop onto the website on a Saturday, you can pre-read the stuff that we're going to be talking about on Sunday. That's good to know. Thank you for all your hard work and hope you guys have a very happy Christmas and a happy new year. Yep. And you do the same. It was great to hear from you. And thank you for giving us a call all the way from the UK. Likewise. Alrighty, I am on the air now with Kathleen from Idaho. How are you doing tonight, Kathleen? 
I'm great, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really well. So Mike tells me that you have a theory that I have not heard before. So, so lay it on me. Okay. Well, I have zero investigative experience, but <laughs> I just kept thinking about this. You had talked about the possibility of two people being with Elnora Griffin when she died. So I was kind of thinking, especially after Leonard's interview, that he's with Elnora. They have some sort of sexual intercourse or something. Angela catches them together. She attacks Elnora and strangles her, and Elnora loses consciousness. She somehow, Angela, convinces Leonard to leave, that she, you know, she'll take care of it, you know, and not to help her because he's Angela's baby daddy, all that kind of stuff. And then once he leaves, Elnora regains consciousness, and Angela slits her throat. Okay, I have not heard that one before. And uh, let, let me give the, the quick disclaimer that we're not saying this is what happened. I mean, every, everything is leaning at, at, and previous callers, too, at, at Angela and Leonard right now. So I want to make sure to, to point out. I haven't narrowed in to say that I think they even did it. But to talk about the theory, I think that that's possible. I hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, if, if it was, say, those two involved, that if Angela had tra- strangled her, Elnora went down and told Leonard she would clean it up and then slit her throat after he left. Is that basically what you were saying? Yeah, and that would explain why in his interview with you, he had just talked about her being choked to death. Right. Well, I would say that that is a definitely a, a logical theory that is something that is possible, presuming that we don't find any evidence that Leonard did, in fact, actually know that her throat was slit. And that kind of throws a monkey wrench into everything that we know so far. Right. Yep, that sounds great. And hey, thanks, Kathleen, for calling in and giving your thoughts. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. Yep, you have a Merry Christmas. You too. Okay, I'm on the air with Katie from Sydney, Australia. How are you? I'm good. What is it, like tomorrow there right now? Yeah, uh, lunchtime. <laughs> lunchtime on Wednesday. It's 9 p.m. I'm here. way ahead. Okay, well, at least I've got the hours right now. Right, right. Uh, so what have you got for us tonight, Katie? I mean, I have a, a thousand questions which I think may or may not be answered by all the information that you've just received. Uh, things like the scratch on Mosley's car, police report, where is it, uh, lots of things about Mosley. But one question um, I did want to know is prior to moving from Dallas, how often did Elnora visit the area and, and stay with Johnny? I, I think I remember her being there for a Super Bowl party before she arrived. I'm just wondering what her interaction was with local people before she moved there. Okay, so we don't know exactly how many times Elnora visited Tyler before she moved from Dallas. I can only assume that it's been several times. We've heard several things from Lionel has told me that he met Elnora at Johnny's on a couple of occasions and that they had been talking and kind of seen each other for over a year before she moved there. Uh, Leonard met her at some kind of party at Johnny's. Francis Johnson met Elnora at some kind of party at Johnny's, so... And I have to, and the fact that she moved and moved in with Johnny there just tells me that it seems like she had to be relatively familiar with the area. So I, I don't have an exact number to give you, but I think that uh, she probably has spent made several trips. It's about a two-hour drive from where she lived in Dallas to Tyler, and I think she'd probably been there several times. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. It was coming from a place of the depth of the relationship that she had in, with the people in the area. So it seemed to me that although she lived a lifestyle that I certainly wouldn't pass judgment on at all, it seems very quick uh, from the time she moved there uh, to her untimely death that she'd created these sort of quite intense relationships with people. 
So I was wondering if there was like that background, which uh, which you just let me know. So that's great. Yeah, and, and actually, it's it, now that you say that, it is kind of strange. All three people that we know that she was involved with, Leonard Mosley, Lionel Williams, and Francis Johnson, all three of them she met before she ever moved to Tyler. Yeah, so I'm wondering if any, what the intensity of the relationships was prior to her officially moving there. Right. I think that's a, something definitely worth looking into. And I've got, with the new documents, mm-hmm. I've got a couple of new leads to help hopefully get us some more answers for what was going on in Dallas. But hey, Katie, thank Great. you for spending your Australian lunch with us. It was good to hear from you. And <laughs> hopefully we'll hear from you again. You're very welcome. And thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm, I'm totally hooked. Keep doing the good fight. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day, Katie. Thanks, guys. You too. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye. Okay. Well, that's it for the calls today, and that's it for the calls for this year. And again, one last time in 2016, I want to thank all of you so much for all of your support in every way that you've given it. Mike and I are going to take a week off from production this week, but we will not be taking a week off from the office. We'll be spending every minute for the last week in this office pouring through and analyzing and cross-referencing every single one of those pages of documents that we finally received from Smith County. Yeah, the week off from production could not have come at a better time. Right, it's really perfect because we really needed time to research all this documentation. So we're going to go ahead and close out the show today so we can get right back to work. But again, we thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next year. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Our intro music today was To the Top by Score Squad. All other music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller, for transcribing every episode and mailing them out every week to Kenny and Ed. And please keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. I think we're going to have a pretty incredible start to 2017. We're right on the brink of actually solving the murder of Elnora Griffin. And we have selected our next case, and we are in the process of researching that at the exact same time. 2017 is going to be another wild year. But until then, please keep in contact. You can like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter, at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.